It's great to be with you today and I'm going to be carrying on the series that we've been looking at the last two weeks entitled Dangerous Faith where we're looking at the book of Acts in the Bible, the early church, as well as looking at stories from the persecuted church in our day and age. Now Dangerous Faith is not meant to be just a nice title or a nice tagline. It is a truth that we find in scripture after scripture as well as church reality. I think one of the reasons that we want to look at this as a church is that certain traditions tend to not go for what John Wimber, who is a founder of Vineyard, used to entitle the kind of the radical middle. And so as a child, I was brought up in a church where we emphasize verses like Jesus saying, take up your cross daily and follow me. We learn verses such as Philippians 3 verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, becoming like him in his death so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Verses like Philippians 1 verse 21 where Paul said to live is Christ but to die is gain. And so there was that kind of emphasis on suffering and kind of death. And this was kind of reinforced in a good way From my experiences as a child in Colombia, my dad was put in prison for having the Bible in Spanish. A number of times, they tried to lynch him. One of his co-workers was a widow because her husband had had glass put in his food and it had killed him. A very painful, slow and painful death. A few years before, five American workers had been martyred, killed in Ecuador for seeking to share the good news. And so this kind of shaped my way of thinking and of doing life. For me, this was kind of normality, these verses, and what they meant and what they looked like in my reality. And then in later years, you know, I met kind of traditions that kind of emphasize just the triumphant God, the kingdom of God now on earth in this time. And seeing signs and wonders and living from a place of overflowing hope and joy, and all the verses that you can find that sustain those. And so I kind of had these two things, and so kind of wanting to kind of blend them together, that it is both of them. And it's rare to find this. One of the people I most admire is a lady called Heidi Baker. And if you don't know Heidi Baker, she's worth listening to. My children, all on different kind of journeys in the faith with Jesus, all love to hear her. And I think one of the reasons they like to hear her is that she combines this. She talks about the blind scene and just many people coming to Jesus and kind of compassion in the kingdom of God now. But if you hear her story, she talks about the pain and the suffering a number of times, particularly when her husband has nearly died. And so as a church, we want to do the radical middle. And so we do things like series that focus in on the kingdom of God now. Some of the reflections I do in the morning focus in on those issues of hope and joy and faith. And so to kind of bring in the whole valley of scripture, because all scripture is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting. We also want to look at a series that looks at pain, that looks at suffering, that looks at resilience. To looks at what we can learn to apply in our day and age. So I'm going to read about somebody called Stephen. And this story we find in Acts chapter 6. And it says this, starting at verse 8. 
Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, did great wonders and miraculous signs amongst the people. Opposition arose, however, from the members of the synagogue, of the free men, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia. These men began to argue with Stephen, but they could not stand up against his wisdom or the spirit by whom he spoke. Then he secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak words of blasphemy against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. And they seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testify. This fellow never stops speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus and Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Then in chapter 7, Stephen just begins to go through the Old Testament story after story, explaining his kind of viewpoint, a way of looking at things. And then moving on to verse um, 48, after he's been arguing about this idea of the temple, he goes, however, the Most High does not live in houses made by men. As the prophets say, heaven is my throne and heaven is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or well, where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? You stick-necked people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. You are just like your fathers. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your fathers did not Persecute this. They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. You who have received the law that was put into effect through angels, but have not obeyed it. When they heard this, they were furious and gnashed their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he fell on his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When he said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. And I'm just going to play the clip. I open doors, and this is Dr. Ronald Boyd Macmillan just sharing some thoughts on those verses. In chapter 7 of Acts, a Christian is martyred for the first time amid a hail of stones. What was it that got him killed? Well, he had a dangerous idea, a very dangerous idea. And he puts it like this. He says, God's temple is not built with human hands. His name was Stephen, and that got him killed. Of course, it didn't help that he said it in the temple to the very people who ran the temple. And it didn't help that he said it in a trial, in a way that didn't attempt to win friends and appeal to the jury. What Stephen said, how he said it, and where he said it, 
got him stoned to death by religious leaders, the first Christian to die for his faith. Stephen said, God's temple is not built by human hands. It doesn't seem that revolutionary. It doesn't even seem true on the face of it, because aren't all temples ultimately built by human hands? What's so wrong about a temple? What did Stephen see that got him killed? Something that he seemed to see as a Greek-speaking Jew, as opposed to the apostles who were Hebrew-speaking Jews, and they were a lot more positive toward the temple than Stephen was. What does he see in a temple that makes him speak against it so boldly? What's a temple doing for Stephen to lead us away from God rather than toward him? Well, think of it this way. If you wanted to send a letter to God in the first century AD, you would address it like this. God, Holy of Holies, Temple Mount, Care of the High Priest, Jerusalem, Palestine. That's where God was. That was God's address. And the whole religion revolves around making sure that you're pure enough to come close to God's address, to the Holy of Holies. The purer you were, the closer you got. If you stayed pure, God liked you. You could approach. But if you weren't pure, if you hung around with the wrong people, if you didn't wash your hands the right way, if you didn't say your prayers the correct way, if you didn't sacrifice the right animal, whatever, God wouldn't like you, God wouldn't hear you, God wouldn't save you. Being part of a purity religion is a terrifying business because here's the problem, you never know whether you've been pure enough. Pure enough for God to actually like you. Jesus disagreed with this whole purity system. So much so that when he said the temple would be destroyed, the priests arranged for him to be killed. A religion that's all about becoming pure to be saved has a very important benefit for those in charge of it. It's a great system for controlling people. When I was working in China, I learned about the controlling power of religion from a very powerful man, a provincial leader in fact, pretty much with the power of life and death over tens of millions of people. I got in to meet him one time at a banquet and it was arranged by house church leaders who said, you know, this is a special opportunity here. Give him the gospel. Nobody's more powerful in this province than he is. Well, it was coming up to Christmas, so I told him the story of the nativity. And he began to listen very closely. So, so well, in fact, that I thought he might be thinking of becoming a Christian. And then he said, well, thank you for telling me about this, this religion. He leaned back and he spoke to one of his aides and he says, how many Christians do we have in this province? He got a reply and it seemed to surprise him. And he gave this guy another order and the aide rose and left. And then he turned to me and he said, thank you again for telling me about this amazing religion. He said, I've just banned the celebration of the nativity in this province. 
I said, you banned Christmas. He said, yes. I said, well, why? He said, well, isn't it obvious? The idea that God could be a child born to a no-name girl in a no-name village, if that were true, God could be anyone. And God could be everywhere. He said, I can't have that getting around. I can't manage that, he said. And I said, well, what do you mean you can't manage that? You can't tell me you think you can manage God. And he said, well, yes, of course. I said, well, well, how would you manage God? He said, it's simple. You keep him in the temple. You keep him in the temple. He said, look at every Chinese village. It's got a temple. A peasant goes into the temple and they light a stick and they put it in an orange or a uh, a lemon, and they ask for a bit of good luck from their ancestors. Said, no harm done. Stays in the temple. Not dangerous. Doesn't really get out. This idea that God doesn't stay in the temple, but could be working through anyone, at any time, everywhere. He said, oh, I can't manage that. It was like talking to Herod the Great or Caiaphas, the kind of men that put Stephen to death. And when he makes his great defense speech in the book of Acts, he's asking the question, well, where did our great ancestors in the faith meet God? Did they meet him in the temple? Where did Abraham meet God? When he was a sun worshiper in Iraq. Where did Joseph meet God? When he was a prisoner in Egypt. Where did Moses meet God? When he was a shepherd in the desert in Midian. None of them, none of the great ancestors of the faith actually met God in the temple. Aren't you making a bit too much of this? Well, they didn't like it. What is a temple made with human hands, as Stephen means it? Well, a temple, it's something we build ourselves to keep God in. And it's very subtle because we think we're building it to get to God, but actually, it's how we keep him away. It's how we keep him out. So we always have to look at our lives and ask, well, is there a temple we have constructed with our own hands to keep God in, to manage him, if you like? Might be a tradition, a building, a place, a doctrine, a book, an experience even. Something that keeps God in, something that tries to make God safe and predictable, something we do that makes sure he's always on our side. It takes a lot of energy to keep God in a box like that. And it's very dangerous, dangerous to us, I mean, because God doesn't stay there. God can't be managed. And it's crazy to think that he can, but there's something in us that, that attempts to. So a temple, according to Stephen, is the way we try to keep God at bay. And if we realize that's what we're doing, then actually God is, as it were, let out of the temple. But if you want your God safe and predictable and manageable, oh yes, build a temple for him. But if you want God to be who he really is, dangerous, just, sovereign, accepting, then we better dismantle that temple and live.
Wow, some challenging words there by Ronald. And he's challenging us about avoiding a temple mindset. You know, he talked there right at the end about we often want to make God safe. We want to make him predictable. We want to make him manageable. That we limit him by building, by doctrine, by a way of doing life. We try to box God in. And God's saying, I want to break out. You know, that the action is out there. It doesn't want to be limited to a place. You know, we use this phrase in church about being scattered servants everywhere in every place, seeking to be Jesus and share Jesus. And as we do that, we will see amazing things happen, but there will also be a cost to doing that. And I want to focus in on two mindsets very quickly, which I think sometimes can affect us from letting God out. Firstly, I think um, the mindset, I'd call it just personality, just thinking, well, I'm not wired that way. That's not who I am. You know, so-and-so, they're good at kind of going out and sharing the good news. They're kind of wired that way. That's the personality. You know, people often think I'm that way, but it's not. It's not a box I've allowed myself to be put in. You know, I have worked overseas, but I'm one of the worst people on paper to work overseas. I'm terrible at languages. I'm not like Katie. I'm really, I really find it hard to make small talk and to move things on. That's one of the reasons why when you have things like we have at the end of this service, you know, you can log in and get into small groups and just chit chat. And I think, why do I want to do that? I don't like doing that. I find that hard. This is easy for me speaking. You know, it's this small talk I find hard. But I've not allowed that box to box me in. But often I find people go, well, they're like this or they're like that. Well, you're gifted in this area. No. It's just the Bible says that I'm to go and share the good news. As far as I'm concerned, it says it, and that's the end of the story. And I'm not going to allow my personality to get in the way, even though I wish I had a personality, which I look at and think, I'm sure it's easy for them. Secondly, the thing that sometimes allows us, or we use to kind of box ourselves in and box God in, is theologically when we interpret verses. For example, verses like Jeremiah 29 verse 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you. Declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. And so we use verses like that, and so we interpret life that anything that seems to be hard or difficult, that might seem to involve pain or cost, can't be of God. And so often I, uh, people might not say it so blatantly, but it's so often uh, inferred in the conversations that I have. When I talk about people that go overseas, they go, oh, surely God is not going to ask me to do that. God is interested in my kind of happiness, in my well-being. No, God is interested in you becoming who he wants you to be, entering into the fullness of who you want you to be. He's less interested in our happiness, but in our maturity. Nobody's ever fully entered into the fullness of all that they were meant to be, be it a sportsman, be it a musician, be it a, an artist, be it a success, successful business person, let alone the greatest calling that you can have upon your life, which is to be a follower of Jesus. We are at some aspect of cost. We are having to let go of something. We are having to make some type of sacrifices. It's very easy to learn verses like Romans 12 verse 1 
Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices. Living sacrifices? Die! That's the whole point of a sacrifice. And so we can quote nice little verses like that. But actually, do we want to live verses like that? And when we do that, we enter into the fullness of all that God does and wants. One of the reasons I love some of the work I do working with people that work in overseas countries is these are some of the people that on paper seem to have sacrificed the most. And I'm not going to put them on a pedestal, but they've had to make choices and decisions. But they're also some of the people that I know that are most fully alive. Maybe that's what Paul meant in Philippians 1 verse 1 to die is gain. What mindset do we have? Do we have this mindset of personality? I'm not wired that way. Maybe we have this kind of mindset that whenever God keeps challenging us about things, we think, no, surely there's not going to be this cost or that cost or that relationship or that house or that job I need to let go of or whatever it may be that is sacred to us, that God is inviting us to let go of so we can move into the fullness of all that he has for us. It might be another mindset. Maybe just ask God, what mindset, what temple mindset do you want to break down? How am I boxing you in today? Secondly, I want to, I want to look at today what we can learn from the life of Stephen. First thing I felt like God was saying to me as I was looking at this is just to remind myself and each one of us that Stephen, he wasn't an apostle. He wasn't like Peter or John. He was an ordinary person that just happened to obey God. And persecution came his way. Yeah, he's known as the kind of the first martyr. But that came out of him just being an ordinary person following Jesus. He never wanted to be put on a mantelpiece. And I felt like God saying, being ordinary does not disqualify you. Being ordinary qualifies you. And you can look around and see different people and have your different heroes of the faith. But God calls the ordinary. And then he causes them to do extraordinary things. So Stephen was ordering. The second thing I noticed was he was full of the Holy Spirit. You see that in the passage that we read. Right at the beginning, he was full of the Holy Spirit. We told as they started stoning him that he was full of the Holy Spirit. If you look at some passages we didn't read at the beginning of Acts chapter 6, verses 3, 5 and 8, say he was full of the Holy Spirit. And I felt God that say that ordinary people, when they be when they are full of the Holy Spirit, become extraordinary. They change, they become different. And so if you fall, it implies the state that you obviously can be empty. And another challenge, and if you know me, I like to ask questions is, how full are you? How full am I? How can I fill myself up? How can I do life in such a way that I live from the place of always being full of the Holy Spirit? See, whatever you're full of, I have a cup of tea here, and if I knocked it, it's up to brim pretty much, I'm not going to tip it anymore, tea would come out. And you see, in the life of Stephen, he was full of the Holy Spirit, so when he got knocked, one major knock in being stoned, what came out? Love, forgiveness, seeing the glory of God. What comes out of me? What am I full of? See, he was ordinary, but he was full of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, he knew his Bible. 
Again, I didn't have time to read it, but if you read Acts chapter 7 and just up to the verse 44 where we started and you look at just verse after verse and story after story from the Bible, he knew his Bible. How well do we know the Bible? We need it for this season and for the seasons that we go into. I've been reading a number of books about the persecuted church. There's a book called The Insanity of God written by somebody called Nick uh, Rick Penn, and I encourage you to read it. It's got some great stories in it. I might borrow some of them in the coming weeks. And um, he looked at the lives of people that have been put in prison, particularly in Russia and China, and sometimes for, you know, 5, 10, 15, 20 years in horrendous conditions. And he wanted to know not only how they f- survived, but how some of them thrived. And one common characteristic was how they used the Bible, reminding themselves of scriptures to feed upon them daily, to keep them going. I just read a couple of books, uh, literally in the last few weeks. One called Evidence Not Seen by somebody called Darlene Dib Rose. And she was interned for four years in Japanese internment camp. And then something called, um, book called Bold as a Lamb, about Pastor Lamb, probably one of the two or three key leaders in the Chinese house church. And he was put in prison, I can't remember, 22, 25 years hard labor. Very different people, very different backgrounds. But the common thread that kept them going during their time was the Bible. One of the things that they feared the most, that they would forget the Bible verses that they had learned because they drew their life and their nourishment from it. Now, it didn't make it a bed of roses, but again and again in the stories, they just talk about how a verse came back to them. And that was enough. That was a daily bread to keep them going. And I challenge myself in this season and as I look forward is, how do I need to grow in this area? I'm aware that most of the verses I know are the ones I learned as a child. I'm trying to help my, our children realize my children are, are not so strong in this area. So... I kind of printed off the, you know, just look on the internet, you know, the 50 verses you should memorize for children. And uh, I printed them off and I cut them up and I put them in this jar. And occasionally they, they take them out and then we give them some sweets. And just as the, the children are eating the sweets, we say, think about this verse. What does it mean? What does it look like? And then let's just memorize it. And so this is a simple thing. Maybe you want to do that or something else. But let's get the word of God into our life. Many people are talking about a possible great awakening of God moving this year and coming years. And I'm praying that that will be true. But I know also scripturally that when God begins to move and hundreds of thousands of people become to, begin to follow Jesus, a great awakening, a revival, whatever you want to call it, the Bible also says there'll be a season of increased persecution and falling away. I want to be prepared for this season and for whatever season comes ahead. Lastly, the thing I see from Stephen's life was he knew how to forgive. Now, we might not get stern like Stephen, but maybe we'll get more what we read right at the beginning, at the end of kind of Acts 6, where it talks about people just coming and making lies and false accusations against Stephen. Maybe that's something you can associate with. How am I going to react and deal with that? I love to read leadership books and leadership stories and learn from leaders. 
I used to um, study and lecture in leadership, if you wonder why. But even if you look at the Bible, you see again and again key figures like Joseph, David, Daniel, they were all falsely accused and put in lion's den, put in prisons, or had to go into hiding. And the question was, how did they react? At some point, at some level, they learned to forgive. Forgiveness was a key to their breakthrough and living life in all its fullness. And we need to learn that for this season, let alone any other season. And you see this story in those that will get persecuted. I love the story of this lady, this Dutch lady called Corentin Boone. She was put in a concentration camp in the Second World War and her dad was killed or her sister got killed because they were betrayed. And she talked a lot about love and forgiveness after the war. And there's a story once she was teaching in Germany after the war. And this person came to the front and he said, thank you so much for that talk. Can I shake your hand? And as she looked at him, she recognized him as being one of the former guards that had mistreated her sister so badly. And she had a moment there and she said it was hard and she just asked God and she just reached out. And just as her hand grabbed his hand, God's supernatural power came through her and she was able to shake it and say, you know, you know, thank you so much and I just love you. And I'm not downplaying it and it's not easy. But that's the power of God, the power of God to bring forgiveness and that brings transformation. I mentioned earlier about the story of these five missionaries who got killed in Ecuador in 1956. And that could have been the end of it. But the widows carried on the work. And that whole village pretty much came to Jesus as they forgave and showed the love of God. So hopefully we all can, can say we're like Stephen. We're ordering. Maybe the bigger question is, and for me and for you, is are we full of the Holy Spirit? Do we know our Bible? Have we learned how to forgive? And be people that live a lifestyle of forgiveness. So as I come to the end, I'm going to pray in a minute. Again, a couple of questions. What has God been saying to you, challenging you about today in this message? What changes, what mindsets, what ways of doing life need to change? Let's pray. I'm going to pray for the persecuted church and then I'm going to pray for us. Father, I pray for those across the world who have been persecuted today, even right now, because of their belief, because of their love for you. And I pray, Lord, that you would fill them afresh. Like Stephen, Lord, in the most horrible and cruel time, Lord, you opened heaven and revealed yourself. I pray for that, God, that they will catch a fresh glimpse of you today. I pray that this... Today that you will bring back to mind some of the words, some of the scriptures, some of the songs. And may they bring comfort and hope and strength, not just to them, but to their families and to their friends, God. Strengthen, Lord, the persecuted church. Equip it, God. May its influence carry on growing and impacting the countries where they are at. And Lord, I pray for us, God. I pray we won't just read the stories of Stephen and think, wow, he was an amazing person. But help us to learn from his life and from his message. Reveal to us, Lord, where we box you in, God. 
the excuses that we use, that maybe we justify with our personality, that we justify, Lord, with our theology. Just break those down, God. Smash those down, that we will be people, Lord, who are courageous and bold, Lord, and have a dangerous faith, God. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. Root us in your word, God. And may we be the people that are the most forgiving in the whole world. That we wouldn't just talk about your word, Lord, but we would demonstrate the power of your word. Amen.